Hi, my name is Nadia Rosemond, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Adam Kewen, and you're listening to the last episode of the podcast, Relay Essay. Relay Essay is a connected conversation of student affairs professionals across Canada, sharing what they do, uh, what they're thinking about, trends, concerns. The relay part is as we interview our colleagues, they kind of recommend other people to connect and continue the conversation with. So this is our last episode of this season, and it is a doozy of an interview. I was very jealous because Nadia, I think just due to scheduling, it was it was good for you to do this solo, but I was so jealous that I missed out on the conversation, but so happy that we have an audio recording that I could still benefit from it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I had the joy of interviewing Professor Michelle Pigeon out in B.C., so we're ending it with the West Coast, which is amazing. Because we started on the East Coast. Yeah. Great. And due to the scheduling conflict uh, Adam was talking about, I was able to, I interviewed Michelle in March, in the thick of March or April, no, March, as we were all entering, or in, in it, in the COVID, like, shutdown across the country. So scheduling was a bit wild for all of us. Um, and we kind of waited till our, our calendars were a bit more free, trying to find time where we wouldn't be zoomed out, you know, teams out, Skyped out, whatever that format you used out. And, um, I'm really glad to share this episode with you as we both share, um, student affairs in the time of COVID, like, I guess our own personal check-in, um, talking about things that we're thinking about coming up as well as um, touching upon indigenous ways of knowing, reconciliation, and, and truth, and so on. So it's a, it's a good episode to end with. Awesome. So let's, let's just get to it. I will declare that I'm not the type to have any yes. It's worth all the shares. The number one podcast is student affairs. Want to hear what they have to say, along with all the guests that are popping on the way. I'm really excited to meet with you and discuss um, what you do, your background, and the time that we're in, as this is recorded on in April 15th, 2020. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you want to begin by um, telling us who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, well, thanks for the opportunity to be part of the um, the Relay podcast. Um, it's an honor to be part of this conversation. And I guess I'd like to start by acknowledging um, I'm sitting here in the beautiful, unceded, traditional occupied territories of the Kate Kwantlen, Semiyahu, um, and other Coast Salish peoples in which the shared territories here in the lower mainland of British Columbia. Uh, I am Michelle Pigeon. I'm Mi'kmaq ancestry from Newfoundland and Labrador originally, um, but I've lived here in British Columbia for almost 20 years now. Um, came out here to do my doctorate at UBC, and then uh, I was fortunate enough to get a, a faculty position at Simon Fraser University, where I've been for the last 13 years. Um, and so in my faculty hat, I um, 
teach and supervise uh, master's and doctoral students within the educational leadership program, um, which we have some kind of um, cohort themes. Um, and typically, I'm involved with the ones that are focusing in student affairs and services and post-secondary um, education. Um, yeah. And also in my role as faculty, I co-chair the Indigenous Education Reconciliation Council in the faculty of ed um, and kind of help move forward indigeneity um, in our faculty and have got Simon Fraser and, uh, in different kind of capacities. It's a little bit about what I do. Amazing. And mm-hmm. what drew you to teaching? Like, what do you, what do you, what are aspects that you enjoy? Um, and not enjoy, um, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly of it. <laughs> well, I guess um, what got me interested in, so, you know, when I was home and I was doing my uh, my undergrad, um, I was really interested in being a vet. And then I think some people listening to this podcast probably know my story a little bit, but I was really interested in being a vet and then came across um, serendipitously student affairs and services, got involved in student leadership activities on campus, um, got mentored by folks like Donna Hardy-Cox and Rob Shea and um, kind of grew up within student affairs with Jen Brown and all those and Tom, Tom and all those folks. And so, you know, there's a connection of community there within student affairs that I think I feel like they're my family, um, extended family. And, we, Jen and I were doing our master's together. And in that process, I kind of culminated a lot of my own experiences from kind of, um, finding out more about indigenous researchers, um, finding out the absence of where indigenous voice and student place was at universities. And so did my master's work around looking at indigenous student services across Canada and from there, I got the research book. So I came to do my doctorate um, because of the research and the opportunity to work with Joanne Archibald at UBC, mm-hmm. uh, who's like infamous um, in terms of her role in supporting and growing Indigenous education um, in the country and internationally. So that experience of research really kind of drew me to also this idea of I could do something. Um, different. And so in, in thinking, certainly when I came out this far to BC, I came to be mentored and, and have, you know, Indigenous role models be part of my experience, which was something I never had growing up. Um, and then in finding out about research and just all the different opportunities a doctorate could provide me, um, and under the mentorship of Joanne, um, you know, they said, Michelle, you can always go back to student affairs, um, but in your doctorate, let's try to prepare you for a faculty role just in case. And oh. Joanne would get this lean in her eye and wink. And I'd be like, <laughs> okay. So, you know, some people saw things in me that I didn't see. <laughs> so, I love that. I love when that happens. Right? Yeah. So, you know, cause my thought was I'd go back home and, and help build, um, and be part of the team, uh, at Mun and, uh, do different kinds of things. And, and, but this is where life serendipitously, I guess, has put me. Um, and so, yeah, so then I began my, my faculty career. Um, and in that, I just couldn't give up my passion for student affairs and services. Um, and then saw an opportunity in my faculty role to create some academic programming 
mentoring the next generation of folks coming up through the field and giving them some of the opportunities that I was given as a young professional, like working on research and um, figuring out connections and building networks of support and um, seeing that they're not alone in this field, um, that there is a, a body of practitioners, a body of researchers, a collection of scholarship that's growing. Um, and, and we are like, just, it's very exciting to be part of that process. Um, and so that's the, the piece of it. So your question around teaching, I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't really come into a faculty role um, being excited about teaching or, or loving to teach, which is, it's hard to admit, but I have to be honest. That's okay. Yeah. I, yeah. It wasn't something I thought I'd really um, be good at or enjoy, but I think thinking about teaching as mentoring and supporting has helped me find my place in the classroom. Um, and so it's, it's a different way of kind of relationally being um, with a group of folks and just seeing it as a touch point in either undergraduate, because I teach at the undergrad level too, um, and undergraduate students, like just I'm one person in the whole undergrad experience that potentially could give them the space to find something amazing, either about themselves or about their career or about whatever. And for my grad students, um, it's just about seeing them just kind of come into their own, um, their own sense of who they are as, as practitioner researchers to their excitement about the research topics and um, the diversity of things that folks are interested in researching. That got me hooked into the teaching side of the okay. faculty role. Um, but really my heart is the research, um, and kind of contributing in that way. But, um, I now kind of weave it all together. So to me, it's all interconnected. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. For, yeah. I like that word that you use interconnected. And cause I was going to ask, hope it's not too big of a question, but in your like heart, in your opinion, why, why should, why does research matter? I guess, because I find sometimes as a student affairs practitioner, I get stuck in the practicing, the uh -huh. do, especially in times like this. It was like, get everything online now. Um, yeah. And then afterwards, it's like, oh, yeah, assessment. And what do students need? Um, that sort of thing. So um, just thinking about, like, why should, why should research stay connect interconnected in the work that we do? Oh, that's such a great I, question. Is it thanks? And, <laughs> and I think to me, um, and I'll, I'll also admit that, you know, I got mentored into doing research while I was a student affairs practitioner, right? I was helping Rob Shea on a couple of projects. Um, and it just, to me, it made sense. Like, why, why can't we use research to inform what we do and why we do it? to think about the challenges that our students have um, and think about the ways research can help us as practitioners make strategic and informed decisions um, and advocate for our students. Mm. Um, you know, by understanding, you know, the student experience in a more holistic way, um, not just anecdotally, but with, you know, evidence and when I think of evidence and data I'm not just thinking about student numbers um, everything cannot be just brought down to a number level 
um, I think about the narratives and the stories and the reflections and the artifacts of, you know, a student leadership camp and the, the things that we do for our training, um, the energy that students get charged with when they kind of are like getting pumped up to do orientation. Um, and I think about, you know, the intervention programs that we have, like our back on track programs. It's not just about how many students came to class and whether or not they turned in an assignment if they came to class on time. It's about are, are, are the things that we're trying to do to make students' lives better actually helping them be better? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean better in a, um, like a great student, but kind of challenging that discourse of what's a good student. I think based on what the students want. Um, and I think sometimes research can be the tool that we need to help us even understand ourselves, right? Our reflection journals, if folks are taking time to think about our job on a day-to-day basis, what went well, what didn't go well, what's the thing I need to learn more about in my own mm-hmm. practice to help me be better, that's research, right? And so thinking about research as a tool um, or tools in a basket that help us kind of understand ourselves as practitioners, the work we do, and the influence it can have on an institution, right? It can go, again, it's interconnected um, to our individual practice, to our unit, to our divisions, to then the role it has in the institution. And we're in academic institutions. Um, and our job, in part, is to support the intellectual development of our students, but we can't do that and as student affairs practitioners, we know it's not just about the academics, right? Our whole life, the whole student has to be taken care of in this process. So they're emotional, cultural, spiritual, all the different um, pieces of their whole being have to be part of the university and college experience. And our role as student affairs practitioners is to take care of all the bits that are kind of interwoven and interconnected to what they're actually learning in, say, an academic program. Um, And faculty members know that too, right? It's not just that faculty members, well, I'm just here to teach the content and, okay, some might be, but (laughs) we know a lot of them are not. Um, They are concerned about, you know, the whole student and thinking about how that particular course connects with the field of study and, you know, giving them the practical skills, say, to be, you know, an archaeologist who can go out on a dig. Right? There's things, there's life skills that get taught within a program like that that are connected to them living a good life and, and being connected to a career. Um, and so to me, research, I think, is really key to us moving forward what we do. And, and sometimes it's like research aligns with our gut, that mm. niggle feeling that you have, like, I know this works. I know it because I've watched how many students go through this and I've seen how many students have this experience and I know this works or I know that this is the experience as one person saying that people will be like, yeah, we know you've done that job a long time. But as someone, as a practitioner researcher, who can say based on the assessment, based on the feedback, based on the interviews I did, based on the survey I did of 200 students, this is what I found. It also gives us a tool of credibility, of trustworthiness, of um, of an argument to have with others, and uh, not necessarily argument. Maybe that's the wrong word, um, but it's evidence-based decision making. Mm-hmm. I think can be holistic, um, and it can help us as practitioners advocate for the resources 
the time, the staff, um, and the programs we care so much about. And in an institutional context where funding gets cut, even within, you know, a situation like right now where everyone's remote learning, um, and I've seen amazing examples of what people are able to do to bring together connection Mm. um, and thinking about what are the resources and the impact that this is having on our students. Um, You know, how many of our students at home without internet or home without a reliable food source, you know, for some of our students, our campus community are the only place where they feel safe. And so to me, research helps us understand that and advocate so that we can be at the forefront saying, we have the we have the data that shows this, and data to me needs to be thought of very broadly. It's just not about the number crunching. Um, it's a it's a blend of, of the the narratives and the facts of this of the the data. Um, but simply making program decisions based on numbers alone doesn't tell us the whole story. And sometimes we can make the wrong decisions if we don't have the whole story. It's just so true. Uh, you gave some really good nuggets in terms of like having a reflective journal for mm-hmm. like there's so many things that happen within a day, a month, a week in, in the work that we do um, to mm-hmm. kind of capture what we were mm-hmm. stuck on or what our solutions were, or, you know, what our mistakes were as part of mm-hmm. our research and development is such a powerful idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and imagine like looking back at that, like as an early career practitioner, if you started keeping a reflective journal of all the different pieces that you were part of, be honest with yourself about the mistakes you made, be honest about the successes you've had, the connections, the opportunities, the ideas, and then look back at it three years after three years and see the richness of what that actually informs what you do going forward. It's a powerful tool. I love it. If someone were to want to like exercise and strengthen their research muscle or skill as a student affairs practitioner, what are some things that you would recommend to, you know, keep that skill strong or even to develop it? Um, I would certainly look for opportunities to be part of working groups or committees that are looking at research um, within the field, um, and that, that might be within your own institution. It might be um, connecting with faculty members that you know who are doing this kind of research and saying, hey, do you need an RA? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it can be a paid gig. It doesn't have to be volunteer. Um, and thinking about also, you know, we're, we're in your own career trajectory. Does future studies play out? Um, you know, not everyone has to or should feel they need to do a master's or a doctorate, um, but certainly doing graduate studies is, is a place where you get to kind of culminate all your passions, um, and I'm, it's stressful for sure, <laughs> but it's a place to kind of follow your passions and find out what you want to find out more about within a structure um, that is guided by you know theory and literature, and you get taught about methodologies. I think there's also something about self-directed learning um, and creating learning communities around research hubs um, and being able to say, okay, well, I don't really understand what, you know, when I look at a research article on something, I don't understand the methodology of it. So maybe that's the place you start and say, okay, well, what did they do? Oh, an ethnography. I've never heard of that word. Mm. 
let's create a working group and, and or a, a learning circle and think about what that, that looks like. Um, so it can be self-directed, but I think research, um, you know, unless you're doing uh, autoethnography, which is, you know, research of your own experience, it's always in relationship to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, even autoethnography is a relationship of self with others, right? But it's your own reflection. So I think thinking about um, learning in community is a strength of being able to kind of learn more about research and with research. Um, you know, we have to think about the ethics of our professional ethics, but also then research ethics and how do those intersect and sometimes challenge us to um, do our, even our practitioner work in a different way. Um, because there's certain things that we need to kind of be mindful of as a researcher wearing a research hat that translates to our field like around confidentiality and data and um, data management and knowledge dissemination and um, all those different pieces. So thinking back to uh, our start of our conversation, uh, we had this interview scheduled in the time of March when things were, you know, different appearing uh, and this Mm -hmm. COVID came upon us and we had to like adapt, adjust and like talk me through and some of the communities that you're involved in your world, um, the people that you encounter yourself, you know, like what were those early days like in terms of, um, maybe how you had to pivot and react and respond? Oh, um, if you can remember, right. It seems so long ago, but yeah, it, it definitely seems long ago, and, and I also will share that, you know, I had just, um, in February, had been home in Newfoundland um, for family reasons, and went sur- and, and kind of survived the snowmageddon. Wow. <laughs> so I went through, I went through the state of emergency in St. John's, where we had nine feet of snow in, it took me two days to shovel up my dad's driveway. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Using a snowblower and stuff, so um, I, I went through that. Then came home, was just settling in, and then COVID hit, and um, it, it it became very clear to me that this was going to be something that we would all have to kind of go through together, adjust, and really, the, there is no new normal, yeah. right? That this our former normal is gone, mm-hmm. and I think it. I hope everyone listening can just be saying to themselves, "I'll take care of me." Mm. I'll take care of my family and my communities, whatever that looks like for you. And then I'll tend to my work because the thing I noticed about myself in that first few weeks was that, um, in the effort to think through what was happening with my students, what was happening with my colleagues, what's happening at the faculty, um, you know, in all the different communities and part that I'm part of, um, that my own sense of well-being, and I'm not someone that gets anxious a lot at all, um, but I was I was having some serious anxiety mm-hmm. for the first little bit, and alone. then I was like, "No, Hidge, just get your stuff home. You know this is going to shut down. Don't wait for the university. Just move what you need to get home." Um, and so I've taken over my little office and set it up. Um, and then I could just settle in, right? Mm-hmm. So I think for me, I had to first, again, take care of myself and my immediate family. 
Um, and then I could turn to the work. And over the last couple of weeks, there's been an ebb and flow of um, being able to do self-care, um, making sure that's part of my everyday, um, making and just giving myself permission. I don't have to be productive every day. I yes. don't have to get my to-do list done every day. Yes, yes, yes. It's so <laughs> that, important. Yeah, but I don't have to feel I have to get the normal pace of what my faculty life was like is just not going to sustain me in this sense. And, you know, and I'm sure others have now experienced this too, where I'm like, okay, we're like in our third week going into, you know, all being told to work remotely and the number of zoom, blue jeans, Skype, FaceTime requests I've gotten. I'm just in meetings back to back from 10 till four o'clock almost every day. And then I'm like, well, where does that, leave me time for all the spaces in between. If we were on a campus, Mm -hmm. say, I would have time to get from one meeting to the other. I would transition from this to that. I would get the up walking and I'm just like, nope, literally sitting at my desk. (laughs) So I moved in a yoga ball to sit on at different times. Um, But, you know, and so to me, there's this, this essence of in, in our sense of taking care of self while we're physically distancing. Um, being mindful about what we're actually asking of ourselves um, and our bodies and what we're asking of others, mm, okay. um, you know, that we work with. Um, are we understanding the complexity of their home lives? Are we understanding? And I think this is something that, you know, we do very well for our students. Um, like we know our students are struggling. We know some of our students are not in secure housing. We know some of them are struggling with food. Some of them are missing their connections and their friends and, I know folks have been like organizing movie nights for students and connecting in and all that kind of good stuff. But I'm thinking about what are we doing for each other as student affairs professionals? Are we checking in with our our, our colleagues, our friends, um, understanding the complexity of what it means to be working from home and maybe a space that you don't have an office in, that you've got young kids who are also trying to homeschool, Yeah, you know, you know, if you have a, a partner or relationship where, you know, someone's now unemployed, you know, the, just the financial burden alone of those and the stressors. If you're trying to take care of elderly family members or if you have extended family members like I do across the country, like I can't fly home to Newfoundland if something happens. Yeah, I just can't. And so, you know, being mindful of what the realities are, I think, for people is something that um, we've been trying to really just take the time to be present um, and find ways of connecting that are important to you, um, but also taking the time to rejuvenate and whatever that looks like for you, whether it's getting outside for a walk, whether it's curling up with a good book, whether it's turning off the lights and putting the blanket over your head for a couple of hours and having a good nap. Like, I think all those things matter. Um, setting time in your calendar for yourself. Don't set it up so that you're in back-to-back meetings or feeling you have to get everything done in one day. I think it's probably the pieces that we're all trying to adjust and relate to in, in working remotely. But I also am just so thankful in seeing the ways that folks have taken up social media to make sure we're socially connected. Yeah. Um, and, you know, picking up the phone and calling elders and picking up um, 
creating online communities for students and creating, you know, these Twitter and all these different venues that folks are um, connecting with, I think is really important. And I see my indigenous communities um, doing some amazing things that way and thinking through really carefully what it means to be indigenous in a social um, online remote network of folks. Um, it's, it's created opportunities for folks to collaborate internationally in a different way. Um, it's also created these moments of resource sharing and ideas and thinking about um, how do we continue this work in a way that's respectful and honors our ways of knowing and being. And I just, I'm just so rejuvenated by those kinds of conversations because they don't have to exist in just one space. They exist in all the spaces that we're in. And that's a really important leader too. But yeah, thanks for vocalizing. I totally echo your sentiment of letting people know that the same expectations that we have for ourselves um, in a normal setting at work should be adjusted. And I find that's people in most situations, I, I, I should say, I shouldn't assume that's across the board, but I find it's like self expectations, like self, like I should be productive nine to five. It's the pressure of like proving that you're doing it work because you're at home. So I find that people are working even more. Mm-hmm. Like respond to emails fast, respond to calls fast, just to prove that they're not like gallivanting or um, whatever, yeah. they, whatever they want to make yeah. sure that people aren't, aren't, aren't assuming about them. Right. That pressure is there. Um, and I think we're entering a phase where we need to be mindful. It's a long game. So we got to take yeah. care of ourselves to last the long run, not like short term. Absolutely. You know, and I think, I think the more that we help our, our folks and our communities see it, that it's a long game, um, that this is, this is probably going to impact us until the end of the year. Um, and is as hard as that is to wrap our heads around and think, Oh my God, fall orientation. What's that going to look like? How is my program going to run if I can't do it in person? Um, you know, how do I do student clubs and activities if I, you know, I, you can just get overwhelmed thinking through that. Um, but just know that, you know, this is, this is something that we're doing to protect our communities. Um, it's our responsibility. I'm, and thinking about, um, you know, there's so much creativity and so much passion in our field that I know it will be great. Like whatever we end up doing, we will do what we can. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say we're going to do our best because that's not, yes. that's an unrealistic, um, yes. expectation and pressure to put on people. We're not at our best right now. And so we're going to do what we can and we're going to do it in a good way. We're going to do it with connections and support and focus on the relationality of our students, um, and being present. Um, and I think that carries us in the work, um, and, you know, and I'm mindful of folks who might feel that they're being, um, you know, their employment might be jeopardized by this because they're on contract and, you know, they have to demonstrate worth and um, all those pieces. And and I hope that those listening really feel that, you know, the that they'll be taken care of, um, that people are being mindful of all those things and the ripple effects of decisions that have on our student staff, our contract staff, um, and 
the toll that some of this stuff is taking on some of our senior leaders, our senior directors and, and pieces who, who are on these um, university-wide response teams. Mm, yeah, that's true. Know, and, and the constant being on call and stuff. So, um, you know, and I think yesterday we had a, an email sent out from our VPA asking everyone to be polite and kind <laughs> to folks. So I guess there have been a, a few instances of stress and frustration um, being put out on some of the staff who have to be up on campus. Um, and yeah. so I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, as this goes on longer, our emotional toll and our well-being is impacted and being kind to ourselves and being kind to others um, and just extending that sense of compassion um, to each other I think is really important for the long run for both our relationships um, because we will all be back together face to face at some point Mm -hmm. and so we're all responsible about (laughs) To, to to those moments of yes maybe, of maybe misbehaving. So yes. you know, send your nice apology if you've done that, um, and just just be okay with yourself. You know, and take care of yourself. And will the communities will support us and support each other, right? And I think that's the that's how we get through these kinds of things. Um, and seeing seeing the moments of joy that bring you happiness. I was one, like, so I'm always trying to make sure that I'm furthering the calls to action, you know, and being a critical mm-hmm. friend and ally to uh, Indigenous um, colleagues of mine and friends. And I'm just trying to think of, I think I have like a two-parter question in terms of like, what are indigenous ways of knowing? Like, what are some things that maybe that could inform us during this time? Indigenous truths or values that we could hold um, to navigate this time, and also ways that I guess we could try to make sure to include that lens. You know, include that mm-hmm. that dialogue. Because, like I was mentioning before, we're we're in response mode. I think the response mode is dying a little bit, you know, coming, mm-hmm. ebbing and flowing. So my brain is going to, okay, there's all these populations of students that now, like they still need to be addressed and served in some way. Indigenous bodies, LGBTQ bodies, racialized, like, yeah. and I know it's, it's not going to, it's, it's going to unfold as the spring and summer unfold. We'll, you know, we're working towards it, but no pressure, obviously, I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of all those populations, but um, there's some things that come to your mind. Um, well, I guess I think having the listeners of the podcast think about where they're located. Okay. Um, whose territories are you on? Mm. And what are the teachings of the land? that you're on. Um, what are the histories of that land? What are the stories? What are the stories of the people? Um, to me, that's a really important way of connecting um, and not assuming that there's like this panacea of just one way of knowing indigeneity or one way of being. And so to me, that relationship to land is key. Understanding it as a settler, understanding it as an indigenous person who you know, I'm living here on unceded Coast Salish territories from the East Coast. 
the teachings here are different. And so being able to kind of understand what that relationship looks like to the land and the waters here um, isn't really important. We don't have cedar trees back in Newfoundland, so it's just, <laughs> they're giant here and they're yeah. not home. So, you know, thinking about that um, and what that, that means, um, I think there are things about just being present the relationality that I keep drawing on, I think, is a, a wise one. And thinking about our elders, um, the ways that Indigenous communities have just stepped up to try to protect our elders as much as possible from this virus, um, knowing they're the most vulnerable. Mm. Um, and they're the knowledge holders, right? And so yes. being able to do that, um, I think, thinking through ways that um, Indigenous protocol around um, reciprocity and, and giving is just so generous right now. Um, thinking about a colleague who's just been sewing masks for elders and communities and putting it out on Facebook and saying, mm. I'm just sewing. You just tell me what you want and I'll send it to you. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and to me, that's, that's an amazing gift. Um, and so I think the you know, going out on the land, um, whether it's just in your backyard, um, taking time to pay attention to the small details in amidst all the big details. Yes. Um, in relationship to ceremony, I think that's something that people should be guided by, by knowledge holders. And so, um, but there's lots of ways that people are creating ceremonial circles in communities online. And some of them are public. Um, for people to be part of, and some of them are private, and I think we have to respect that. Um, but I also think, you know, Facebook right now has this whole social media happening around um, virtual powwows, and so we've oh, got wow. jingle dressers, fancy dancers, um, all kind of stepping out and wearing regalia and dancing for healing of Mother Earth Ooh, and good. sharing and just connecting the community and, you know, and for those communities that are part of a powwow or like if this is a huge time of the year that they would be getting ready for those, that, that, um, that work. And so it's just beautiful to see that being shared through social media that anyone can be part of and just witness and watch and learn. And, and there's some teaching shared that that's, you get this sense of connection and community. And I think that's a big piece of, um, of what Indigenous ways of knowing and being can help us with right now is that sense of connection, of relationship, of our intergenerational responsibilities to take care of our elders and our young ones, to take care of ourselves um, so that we can be there to help with others um, and just kind of um, leaning in. And there's been another series um, by the Indigenous Knowledge Network around indigeneity in the time of COVID. Oh. And it's had some of the preliminary um, premier Indigenous thinkers from across Canada, United States, New Zealand, Australia, thinking through what our sensibilities and our cultures and our languages have already, and our histories have already taught us about surviving a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, That's true. It's not our first one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so yes. you think about the impact of colonization and all those things that, you know, we've survived these things before and we'll survive this one again. Um, and so thinking, thinking through that, I think grounded, I think just a lot of people in just that sense of 
okay, yeah, you're right. We do have this um, sense of resiliency mm-hmm. that goes back to the, um, our fundamental kind of ways of just understanding our relationship and our connection to being a being on the planet with other beings. Um, and that we're all, again, interconnected. Um, there's a ripple effect if things are out of balance. Things are certainly out of balance right now. Um, and that for us to get back into balance, we have to do the work of ourselves with our communities to create that balance again. So I think hopefully there's some things in there that resonate um, with people. And I think reaching out to elders, um, not to talk to them, but to support them, um, to reach out to communities that you know in your area who may not have accessible drinking water, mm, um, to thinking about, you know, our homeless population, um, our student populations that may be at risk um, or in unsafe living conditions. I think all those things are the pieces that, um, you know, the domestic violence that happens in our communities, across our communities, it's not just an Indigenous issue, but certainly... We know from the Murdered and Missing Women Inquiry that it's certainly an um, overrepresentation in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just being mindful of the, the social inequities that existed pre-COVID are still here and that we have to really be mindful of the impact that all these things are happening. You can't just assume that everyone has access to internet because it's just not true. That's, yeah, so um, true. Even, yeah. even, even for our, our um, say, our Indigenous staff who may have access while they're at work may not necessarily have access when they go back to their home communities. Because some of our communities, even though they're only an hour outside of, say, Toronto, are still on dial-up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's not easy to do remote working if you don't have reliable internet. Um, you can only do so much by the phone. So I think just being mindful of all those kind of complexities, I think is really important. And just, um, again, being compassionate and understanding and non-judgmental about what potentially could be happening in someone's home life um, while we're all trying to balance working remotely. Yeah, that's a good point. I I totally, (laughs) I've taken it for granted that, assuming that every student, like everyone has internet, they have a phone, they have a cell phone. And, um, our Mississauga campus did a quick survey, um, with students over 200 responses. And it was really powerful to have some students acknowledge that they relied on the campus for internet. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of our international students do for sure. Yes. Cause that's, they just can't afford, board to have that on top of everything else. So, and our indigenous students um, are the same. So, yeah. And I think that's a great example, Nadia, of how research helped you understand yes, yes. and challenge some of our assumptions that we bring into our practice. Yes. Just yes, Michelle, looping it back in. That was good. As a teachable moment there. <laughs> yeah, I totally, yeah. It, it helped me so much in, in terms of thinking about our audience and how to make sure mm-hmm what we offer maybe is available other ways and not just online. Yeah. Yeah. It's really key. Um, you know, and I think sometimes in these moments of crisis that we're in, that seem to be sustained and ongoing. Um, the first priority is making sure everyone's well being is okay. Yes. Um, and that's, you know, holistically thinking 
and then the rest of it will follow. I mean, figure the rest of it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it's that sense of well-being because I, the, to see people stress on their faces, the tears that come to people's eyes when you ask them how they're really doing is very telling about how much this is actually impacting all of us. Yes. Um, and I think just really making sure that you're relying on the support networks you have, the available free resources that through count online counseling um, that are being just put out there um, by, by both provincial governments and um, agencies who are just recognizing clear need. Um, this this will have an impact on our mental health mm-hmm. and our well-being for a long time. And I think we have to be, as student affairs practitioners, um, aware of the impact of trauma that will continue to be seen for time to come. Mm. Once COVID's over, it won't. The, the impact of the trauma will not be. Um, and so how do we then return to campus and be okay when someone sneezes? Yes. <laughs> Yes. You know, and those things are going to trigger for some people. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be very mindful of all those kinds of pieces that um, will be some of the ripple effects of this pandemic on our communities. Thank you. Okay, Mm -hmm. so now we're at the part of the interview where it's rapid fire, no pressure. Okay. See your head. (laughs) You're just going to go with your gut on these answers. Okay. Okay. The last book you read. Oh, um, well, I just finished it this weekend. Oh my God. What was it? Um, I'm reading the Inspector Gamache series. So I'm on book eight, whatever that title is. I don't know, but yeah, I love, um, Louise Penny's writing right now and I'm just devouring that. So Okay, uh, if it applies to you, last Netflix binge or last Netflix indulgence, what did you watch? Oh, that so applies. Um, <laughs> I've been binge watching um, La Beau Hotel Beau, I think. It's a um, European Netflix show that was sub- subtitled. It's a mix of Danish and French. Oh, okay. It was fascinating, yeah. I have a, a secret, maybe not so secret, passion for um, crime dramas and detective series. And so, yeah, I've been really enjoying the, the Scandinavian and European series that are now on Netflix. So just been trapped is fantastic from Iceland, just saying. Good tip. Lake yeah. or ocean? Pardon? Lake or ocean? Ocean. Dog or cat person? Dog. Uh, if you were to donate a, a whole bunch of money to a university or college for a building, what kind of building would you want built? A longhouse. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, and what is something folks would be surprised to learn about you? I used to play competitive flag football. Ooh, that's a good fact. That's really good. <laughs> it's a random one. I use it with my students all the time, and they never guess it, so it's a good one. 
Um, okay, one more bonus one. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? The ability to heal. Oh, nice. I like that. Okay, now, since this is a relay... Um, sure. We would love for you to recommend and pass the baton to someone else across our world to interview. So, who would you want to tag in next? Um, I think folks would really um, love to hear more about what's happening up in the Yukon. Um, so, I'd like to tag Tosh Southwick. Um, yeah. That's a good one. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, Michelle, yeah, she's 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 phenomenal. That's so amazing. Everyone needs to listen to Tosh. Okay. Yes. Michelle, thank you so much for this chat. I think it happened when it needed to happen. Okay. I'm glad it, it finally happened. Thanks so much for the opportunity, and hopefully, um, this makes sense for folks and. Always feel free to reach out. It's all good. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best and uh, be well, be safe for you and your family and your community. Great. Thanks so much. And you too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Oh, wow. Just wow. Uh, So good. Thank you for, for thanking Michelle, for Dr. Pigeon for doing oh, yes. that interview. And Nadia, thank you for, for having that conversation. I, I really enjoyed listening to it. Thanks, everyone. And if you want to continue the conversation with us, follow us on Twitter. Michelle's handle is at Pidgey, P-I-D-G-Y 604. Include myself and Adam. I'm at Nads Roses, and he's at Adam Kewen with the hashtag Relay SA. So we want to give a shout out to Adrian Ross, who um, does our theme music, and also uh, a shout out to David Ipian, who has another student affairs podcast in the Canadian landscape called the Student Success Exchange. And before we wrap up the season, we want to just give another shout out to all of the folks who made time to speak with us and Mm -hmm. were willing to have these conversations uh, recorded and shared with all of you. So thanks to Christine Arnold, Tim Rowley, Uh, Tamara Leary, Stephanie Waterman, and Michelle Pigeon. Thank you so much for everything. Adam, thank you for a great season seven. And thank you, Nadia, for a great season seven. Uh, Everyone, thanks for letting us into your homes, your earbuds. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this season. It keeps you, we hope our voices have kept you company uh, during this time. Uh, that you've gotten a lot of things out of our podcast and stay tuned Um, be safe and well and bye for now bye for now thanks for listening